0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Father, in a very real way, we should just stand still and say thank you for the fact that Christ has died for us, and that's the end of the story. There are a lot of the things we could talk about, and we will today talk about some of them. But, Father, we just need to keep coming back to that simple fact. Christ has died for me. Thank you. I myself look at that, and my brothers and sisters here look at that and there are times when when i see it lord and it stirs me it is special it is it is marvelous and there are other times when it is it's is simply a fact and it's not emotionally connecting but it's still true in both of those situations And so, Father, I pray that you would give us, whether we are in the former case or the latter case right now, I pray you would give faith to us, that we would believe it. That we would wrestle with our own souls to hope in it. And I pray that for myself, that I would wrestle with my own soul to hope in it. Christ has died for me. There is therefore now no more condemnation on me. On my brother, on my sister here. You have stood us in grace, and there we stand, forgiven. Thank you. This morning, Father, as we look at a little bit of the marvelous, mysterious way that you brought that to pass for Gentiles like us, most of us are Gentiles, and then as we look at what you expect of us having made us into your people, Help us to keep in mind that you have, in fact, saved us and that we do, in fact, stand forgiven before you. Help us to revel in that. Where we look at the details and the information in this text, help us to think about it rightly. Change us from it, Lord. And I pray particularly, would you stir us to desire holiness in the here and now, holiness lived out day by day in our lives. That's what you mean for us, your people, to be like, even redeemed and forgiven and standing in grace like we are. Help us to hold these two things in tension, Lord, the fact that we are forgiven and yet still need to walk in holiness. Empower us to do that by your Spirit at work in us through your Word even now. And would Christ be glorified by it in your church. In his name I pray. Amen. This morning, as we return to the book of Deuteronomy, we come back to chapter 23. What we find here in chapter 23 is that we are in the middle of this large section in the book that is spelling out in greater detail the covenant that God delivered to his people at Mount Horeb. He gave his covenant in ten basic statements and then has been for chapter after chapter after chapter, now spelling it out in, in more detail. And that's where we are in chapter 23 with some guidelines this morning about the makeup. Of the assembly of the Lord. The people of the Lord assembled for worship and for war. Those are the two things we'll look at today. What, constitute that, what constitutes that assembly? What makes it be a, a thing? And then, having gathered it together, what is it to be like? Those are some of the details that we're going to look at in the first half of chapter 23. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 and then pass back through them to make sure we understand some of the details before making a couple of observations to answer those two basic questions. So I'm going to move immediately to the text. Let me start by reading 23 verses 1 to 14. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it, and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you, and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see any indecent among you and turn away from you. Deuteronomy 23. Verse 1 is some verse, isn't it? Let's begin with the interesting part. The assembly of the Lord... That is the interesting part because of that word, assembly. The other part is just about Canaanite worship rituals. In, in the religions of the land where people would do all kinds of things like sacrifice their children in fire and cut themselves and beat themselves, this may seem extreme to us, but it is a type of, of extreme great sacrifice, a way of worshiping the gods of the land. Got has something to say about that, which we'll come to later. But the interesting part is the assembly of the Lord. What is the assembly? Well, what is it not? It isn't simply or even primarily a term of geography. So don't, don't in your minds be thinking of, of a place. Not, not a city, not a building, not even a, a land. Doesn't mean that they can't enter the country of Israel or, or can't enter the city of Jerusalem. All those folks would, these folks listed here, all of them would and could physically live in the land, even in the city. So it's not really talking about a location. Nor is the assembly about something that is like genetic or ethnic. And and I know those words are slightly different, but I'm going to use them interchangeably. Maybe a word like race might go in here too. I mean something that's innate, something biological, something that you are from birth. It's not about that a full-blooded Jewish man could still be prohibited because of verse 1 or verse 2, right? It's possible. He could be ethnically Jewish, physically residing in Jerusalem, but yet not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. And then on the flip side, if you go down to verses 7 and 8, a third-generation Egyptian without a drop of Jewish blood in him or her can be in the assembly. So you follow that. The assembly of the Lord, what it isn't, is something that's about a a place or an ethnicity or or a genetic makeup. What is it, then, positively? Well, if you consider the word assembly itself, what you find is that it's just a generic word. Oftentimes, when you do word studies, what you find is that it means kind of what you thought it meant. Assembly, a gathering of people, an assembling of folks. Folks. For some particular purpose. It could be used to assemble the people at Mount Horeb, like it has been in this book. They come together to hear God speak to them off the mountain, the the law. They assemble. It could be used to to talk about assembling, to to come together for the feasts, or to assemble together to make war, which is incidentally what connects us to verses 9 and following. An assembly that is a war camp. It just means a gathering together of a people. Other English words could be used here like convocation or congregation, a place where people congregate, an assembly. And if you hear that last word, congregation, might make you think of something else. And if you were a native Greek speaker or reader and you could read the Old and the New Testaments in Greek, you'd see it plain as day. The Old Testament, long before the time of Jesus, Long before the time of the New Testament, the Old Testament was translated into Greek because many Hebrew people by that time had moved to all kinds of different nations and Greek was their common language across the Roman Empire and they wanted to be able to read the Scriptures and so they translated into Greek. So we have a common language between the two Testaments and if we read it, we would see something. Let me say as a preface here. For some folks, I think, what I'm about to talk about It'll trigger some theological thoughts in your mind. And I don't mean to be, I hope I don't come across as confrontational in some way. But I think that what we're going to talk about here should upset some theological apple carts. Because there is a a clear connection between the Old and New Testaments and the peoples in them. And it shows up right in this word. If we were to read the Greek version of this, we would see again and again and again and again the word for assembly, ecclesia, which some of you know right away is the word in the New Testament that's translated church. Right away in our language we would see there's a connection here. Not that ecclesia itself is a special word. It's a generic word too, which means assembly. You read Acts chapter 19, and you see it used a couple of times to describe Gentile non-Christians assembled for political purposes. It just means a congregating of people together. We translate it in some special context, church in the New Testament, and we have some theological content attached to that. But really the word across both testaments is very generic. Which is why, incidentally, when Jesus in Matthew 18 tells, as we saw last week, tells the disciples in the context of church discipline, tell this to the assembly, to the church, and if they don't even listen to the church, use the word again, then treat them as you do a tax collector or a Gentile, they don't say, what are you talking about? We don't know what the church is. It hasn't been created yet, this side of the cross. It hasn't come into existence yet. Sure it has the same thing that's always been in the Bible. Jesus doesn't have to explain it because they know he means the assembly of the Lord. The Lord's gathered people across both testaments. It's important to realize this conceptual link because what it means is that we can talk about, we can say there is an assembled, congregated people of God. In the Bible, not just in the Old Testament or just in the New Testament, there is an assembled, congregated people of God in the Bible that even in Deuteronomy 23 is not ethnically and not geographically defined. It's defined by something else. The assembly is just that congregation. Well, who can enter it? Verse 1. Not the man who has mutilated himself in the worship of idols. As I said, this was done in relation to various religions of the land. In devotion to another God born in your body. You're that committed. No matter what your ethnicity is, you can't enter the assembly. Verse 2. A forbidden union. Offspring of a forbidden union. And technically that could be any forbidden union. Any non-marital union. But the most common of forbidden unions and the one that most commonly produced children was the union with temple prostitutes. It comes up again later in the chapter. We'll see it next week. This is a relatively common thing, again, attached to the various religions of the land in various temples and shrines and at religious sites and on hills and in, in groves of trees and whatnot. Prostitutes, particularly used for the purpose of creating fertility, of asking the gods to rain on you, on your family, or on your land, on your nation, fertility and prosperity. Temple prostitution was very common. And God again says that outside of the assembly. You cannot be in this congregated group, my people, come together to worship me. You can't be there if you're bearing in your mark or if your very existence testifies to the worship of another god. Verses 1 and 2. And then he moves to the nations in verse 3. A total prohibition against Ammonites and Moabites, who are descended from a forbidden union between Lot and his daughters. But the stated purpose here, what's the stated reason? You can read about it in Numbers 22 and 23. When the people of Abraham were coming out of Egypt, these folks opposed them and actually attempted to curse them. You see some of the details there involving Balaam. God wouldn't listen to it, but that's what they were after. They were trying to oppose the people of God. But regarding the Edomites and the Egyptians, there's a different verdict. A delay of three generations, because they had a favorable attitude at different points. They had a favorable attitude towards the people of Abraham. They were brothers. They had a brotherly affection. They showed them kindness and sheltered them in their need. In short, who can enter the assembly of the Lord? Ethnicity and physical location are not the deciding factors. The question is, who do you worship? And how do you respond to the descendants of Abraham? Those whom God loves. Verse 5. And then 9 to 14 further restricts the assembly to be a particular type of war camp. Not how do you get into the assembly anymore, but what is the assembly to be like? In 9 to 14, the summary word there might put the word holiness over it. Displayed, as so often in the Old Testament is the case, displayed here in very physical, concrete, graphic manner. Verse 9, he says, Keep yourself from every evil thing, such as even... Translation here says, Nocturnal emission... Really generically, it says something that occurs to you at night. Could be because they're trying to be discreet, or it could be because it's actually meant to be a little more broad than than just the physical sexual connotation there. It could be that it involves something going to the bathroom at night. Something that comes out and happens to you at night renders a person unclean. I have to leave the camp. And then 12 and following. Pretty graphic depiction of uncleanness, what belongs outside the camp, bodily waste. It's interesting, isn't it, that he says keep yourself from every unclean thing and the stuff that he he uses as an example, not murder, not theft, bodily functions that are unavoidable. God's standard for... Cleanliness and i don 't mean just hygiene, I mean cleanness in a, in a religious sense is very high. A lot of us might be tempted to think, well okay i 'm okay because i haven 't murdered anybody and i haven 't slept with my neighbor and I... have you gone to the bathroom? That itself renders you unclean. That must go outside the camp because verse 14 and really this is the point, verse 14. Because who is in the camp? The Lord is. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of the camp and His attitude towards you is to deliver you and to give up your enemies and therefore your camp must be holy. even down to the small, minute stuff that you can't avoid. You have to deal with that properly. It must be removed from among you, or God will be removed from among you. That He may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Why take unclean things outside the camp? Because inside the camp, in the midst of the assembled people, walks the Holy Lord. And he gets quickly turned off by unclean, unrighteous things. So deal with them. Set them outside. If you don't, he'll be offended, and he will leave the people to themselves. A tragic situation if you're a war camp. Go fight the battle by yourself. It's doom to the people of God. That's the text. The assembly of the Lord... The Lord's congregated people. Who can be included and how in the first verses, first section. And then what is that group to be like in the second section? And so those, those two breaks are how I'm going to look at this a little further. I'm going to make two observations along those lines. So let me begin with the first one. Related to the question of how. How is this assembly formed? How is it congregated? How do you get into it? So... Let me put it in a sentence here. Entry into the Lord's congregation is a matter of faith and attitude, not genetics and geography. Entry into the Lord's congregation is a matter of faith and attitude, not genetics and geography. This comes out of verses 1 to 8. He writes several different qualifications there, and we've we've seen the details, and clearly it is not simply a question of are you Jewish, yes or no? That's, that's not the issue here. If you were Jewish, you can, and many still did, fall afoul of verses one and two. And Gentile genes aren't disqualifying in of, in of themselves either. But focus in on the, the Ammonite and the Moabite. Because that seems to be kind of a a little bit of a contradiction here. It's not about genetics, and yet these people are forbidden because of their genetics. I mean, you could look at their blood and you could determine this is an Ammonite, and God won't let him in. seems to be about genetics. Well, yes and no. It is barring a whole ethnic group, but, but you have to see why is that. Because of how that group responded to the people of God. He goes through great pains to sketch that out. Verse 4, 5, 6. They did not meet you with bread and water on the way. They did not greet you in love and compassion and help. But in fact, the opposite of that, they sought to curse you. You who are the people of Abraham. In this, we should hear the echo of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. He opposes these people because these people opposed his people. Those whom he loves. That's the, the fundamental, the underlying cause. Their attitude towards the people of God. Or specifically, we could say, their attitude towards the seed of Abraham. How do you treat those people? And at the start of, of Abraham's family, it would be really easy to keep track of this. And When Abraham goes into Egypt, there are 70 people. You know, there's like some portion of, of this side of the room. And you could say, there's a group of people. I can identify them. And then I can say... How does everybody treat these people right here who are all descended from this one guy? It would be very easy to trace that, and you could keep track of it. But as time goes on, there are a couple questions that arise that are questions not in the text, but implied by the text. For instance, here's one question that that comes to my mind at least who actually are the descendants of abraham initially really easy to identify that but eventually you get third-generation egyptians in there you get some edomites you get somebody who married in married joseph somebody who married in married moses if it's not ethnically defined by you know bloodline genetics if if it's not clear to set this group aside because of some scientific test who are the descendants of Abraham who is it that that God is in covenant with can you think of what Deuteronomy itself says Deuteronomy 7 says something about this remember Deuteronomy 7 might look back at Deuteronomy 7 Verse 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery out of the land of Egypt. Okay, who's he talking about? People of Israel. Keep reading. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. People of Israel? Actually a subset, those who love him and keep his commandments. Who is that? Who loves him and who keeps his commandments? Uh, This is a question that I'm asking because it is clearly in this passage very important. The people that God says, you are in my assembly, are those who treat the descendants of Abraham well. Who are those people, the descendants of Abraham? Those who love him and keep his commandments. You know where all this goes eventually, if you keep thinking about this? It goes to the one who is the seed of Abraham. Abraham. It's only one person who loves God and keeps his commandments. One seed of Abraham. Let me set that aside for a second and I'll come back to that. Another question that comes to my mind. So I'm interacting with this. Okay, I I read their God, and and I might put it like this as if I'm querying God. I read their God about... The Ammonites and the Moabites. And they're forbidden. They're, they're cut out because of how they treated the descendants of Abraham. There's the, the root cause. They treated your people a particular way and therefore you cut them out. But what, God? What if, what if, what if there were to be some Ammonites or a Moabite or a Moabite woman who didn't treat the descendants of Abraham that way? Then what? How would you treat those people or that person? I'm curious. doesn't say. Seems to be pretty absolute. No one. They may not enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Well, work with me on this. I know I'm working through a few loops. I tried to make this more straightforward and I couldn't. So try to walk this through with me. God in the Bible with some frequency, speaks in absolutes because of a, of a root cause. But if the root cause changes, we're supposed to understand, well, then the absolute would change. Forty days and I will destroy Nineveh. But they repented. And he didn't. Just like Jonah knew would happen. Right? Absolute, there's no qualification on that. They're done in 40 days. But Jonah knows they're done because they're wicked. But if they would repent, then maybe the absolute is not quite so absolute after all. Well, these people opposed drastically, sought to curse the descendants of Abraham. So they're cut out. But perhaps, if they didn't, curse the descendants of Abraham, but said something like, these people are my people, and this God is my God, then maybe, would you, God, I wonder, let them into the assembly? And if you read the book of Ruth, you know the answer to that. Not only does Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, you read the book, there's a theme there. Not every single time Ruth is mentioned, but more than a reader of a very short book would need to be reminded. Ruth's a Moabitess. And the grandmother of King David. Great grandmother. Grandmother of King David. And I wonder, Lord, about no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one. What if somebody, Lord, born of a forbidden union was not actually clinging to the worship of this foreign god at this shrine? If, if the root cause changed, is this really that absolute of a statement? David had a forbidden union. His son Solomon reigned as king wrote parts of the scripture, clearly a member of the assembly of the Lord. The issue that I think arises here, as I read this and as I ask about it, I kind of think about it, the question, how does one get into the assembly of the Lord? Not by ethnicity and not by physical location, well, what is it then? And in the text there is an implication, well it has to do with worship, that's why I cut people out. It has to do with how they respond to the descendants of Abraham, that's why I cut people out. And there's an implication that if they worship me and treat the descendants of Abraham well, maybe, just maybe they can come in. This is too early in the Bible to call this a missionary text. But it's pointing that way. It's pointing towards Gentiles who by faith respond to the seed of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the one who keeps covenant with him and loves the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. Those who have an attitude of dependence towards Him, maybe, I said it facetiously, they can be brought into the assembly. This perfectly sets the stage for Romans 4. Understand what I'm doing here. Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 8. Just lays out some stuff, and I'm asking questions of it. What does this mean? It sets up Romans 4. Who's a descendant of Abraham? Those who trust, who believe in the God of Abraham, and the seed of Abraham, his son Jesus. There is a warning here, and there is a note of hope. The warning, I think, should speak to us who have grown up geographically around the message of the scriptures and who maybe even genetically, ethnically, are linked to people who believe. Should be a warning here too is that there's no automatic ticket. Children especially. Listen. It does not matter if your parents believe. Do you? It doesn't matter if if you've gone to church your whole life. You've been in this room every Sunday as far back as you can remember. How do you respond to this God and to Jesus, the son of Abraham? Do you believe him? Do you trust him or not? It's a warning for all of us, kids and adults too. Being here is irrelevant unless you respond to what's talked about, what's presented here, what's coming from this scripture by trusting it in your heart. Do you? And there's also a message of hope, I think. Which I I need to, to sound here because as we move into the next section, what we find is that Sometimes we respond with despair in the next section. But there's a note of hope here in that he has made a way for there to be an assembly, a people of God. And he did not cut you out of it because of your birth. He didn't make you a second class citizen in it because of your birth. What country you grew up in. He has made a people of God. It's not all here, but it starts in passages like this. He's made a people of God, an assembled people of God that is determined by faith, not by your birth. And if he's brought you in, he's made you a descendant of Abraham with Jesus. Uh, You receive all his promises. It's an awesome thing. He accepts you. He looks on you in favor. It's a good thing. and Keep that in mind as we move to the the second point. The second observation is concerned with what the Lord's assembled people are to be like. Here's, Here's the second point. The Lord's congregation must be holy in order to enjoy his presence and his power. His congregation, his people, must be holy in order to to know and to enjoy his presence and his power. That's the focus of, of the whole second section of the passage, 9 to 14. And really, it's a significant theme in the whole book of Deuteronomy, which is why it keeps coming up. He's creating a people, an assembly, but he is creating a holy people. It's his, his goal, his focus. And it's here again, verse 9. Keep yourself from every evil thing. And then he gives a couple of examples. Verse 14. Because the Lord is in your midst, and if you don't keep yourself from every evil thing, he may leave. The connection's clear. I, I don't think it's very hard to see it. It's hard to look at it and avoid it. But it is a little hard to process it, I think, because a lot of us, many Christians, we're prone to confuse the fact that when a person trusts Christ and comes into the family of God, you come into the assembly, verses 1 to 8 there, when we trust Christ and are forgiven of our sin, he looks at us as clean, as holy, right? Right? Yes, absolutely, He does. He has taken your sin. This is what the cross is about. He has taken your sin and put it on the cross and taken Christ's righteousness and put it on you. And so He looks at you as holy. Yes, absolutely. But, we are sometimes given to confuse that verdict of holiness with God's ongoing call to walk in holiness. The Scriptures say to Christians, be holy because I am holy. We do indeed have a holy standing before God. It's by His grace. We must be clear about that. And we also have to be clear that His grace continues to empower us to say no to sin because God still hates sin. How does a holy God feel about sin? Opposed to it. He will not cozy up to it. He will not condone it. He doesn't. He's against it. All sin, including sin and in His forgiven people. Sin still offends. Sin still grieves God. So here's our problem. Let me try to make this personal before I make it corporate, applying to all of the body. I wonder, you, speaking to you, I wonder... Do you expect and desire God's presence in your life? His power at work in your life, while at the same time giving little thought or effort towards personal holiness. That's a losing proposition. Do you aspire to, I hope you do, aspire to God's presence and His power It is a glorious hope that God Himself... Think think about this. God Himself, He says, I will be with you. I will stand right beside you in all of the great power that I have. I will wield it on your behalf. That is a stunning offer. Do you want that? I hope you do. You want Him working in your life. But do you want that separate from any commitment of time and effort to personal holiness? Personal holiness is a largely alien concept in the American church today. I don't mean the words. We sing them almost every Sunday. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Righteousness. Righteousness is what I long for. Righteousness is what I need. It's in, it's in our songs. We sing it. But gently, I ask you, is that true? Or are you singing something that's true? Do you long for holiness? Personally, you, today. Today. Ask yourself. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you see sin as your greatest enemy? Your sin, not not your neighbor's sin as your greatest enemy. Your sin as your greatest enemy. Do you long for your personal sin to be strangled, to be cut out of your life, to be killed? Do you war against it? God's grace has been given to you Not just to save you, but also to teach you to say no to ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives in this present age while we await his return. Titus 2. Do you you hear that? It has been given to you to enable you to say no to ungodliness. That involves an effort on your part. By grace, God's grace given to you, but it involves an effort on your part. The great irony of being a preacher is that you preach a sermon to yourself for days before you preach it from a pulpit. And sometimes you don't understand the sermon while you're preaching it to yourself for days. That's where I am this week. I'm working through this text, trying to think about what it means and how to, how to present it. And, and, and all the while, there is this, uh, I'll call it, use words of a friend, there's a significant dark cloud hanging over me, over my heart, over my life. While I'm, t- I'm thinking about saying the words, do you fight sin in your life? Do you see sin as your greatest enemy? Or do you aspire to God's presence and His power apart from fighting against sin in your life? I'm getting ready to say that to you. And the marvelous irony <laughs> The marvelous irony of it is that for me, I'm missing it for several days this week. This is not the Steve counseling hour, but I share this with you because you're just the same. Everybody's sitting here following what I'm saying, agreeing with it. I know I'm supposed to be you know, pursuing holiness and fighting against sin, of course. But you don't get it. I mean, I don't know if you get it or not, but, but you don't. We have the vocabulary. But we don't fight against sin. We don't walk through our days thinking, God, give me grace to kill this sin in my life. We just, I live turning a blind eye to it until something really significant happens that creates a fight. And then I detect that for hours I've been grumbling and negative and grumbling and negative. Boom, it just blew up. Oh, now I see it. But for hours I was blind to it. Days I was blind to it. Because I'm not looking. I don't care to. Do you look? Do you fight it? Do you care to fight it? Maybe you don't know how to fight it yet, but you care to. We... If we aspire to enjoy His presence and His power, which is beautiful and glorious, we must be about killing sin. Cutting it out of our lives. How do you cut it out? Think of it like a saw. I'm a little, I'll I'll put it kindly, I'll say old school. It could be that I'm just old, but I use a manual saw. to cut things so that's the illustration i'm using here if you have only power tools maybe you won't get this but i use a manual saw if you try to saw something by just setting it down and pulling it one way picking it up setting it down pulling it one way it'll cut a little bit not significantly and very very slowly you go back and forth, and back and forth. And if you, you, know, hopefully you've got a saw that has the teeth that go both ways. You're cutting on both the pull and the push. The pull. And the, you're go, cutting it back and forth and back and forth. Think about cutting sin out of your life like a saw, back and forth, an equal length stroke both ways. You can't go forward four inches and back one, forward four and back one. That won't work. Four, 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 four. Think of it like a saw. You look, whichever way you want to do this, one way you, you say, I'm going to attend to you, I'm going to fight. In the back way, God help me. I want to reach out and strangle and kill. God give me the, the grace to see the beauty. Back and forth. So, on the, on the one hand, I, if you only did the one, you would be pursuing this by a mechanism of flesh. I'm going to do it. I'm going to look. I'm going to find. I'm going to say no to ungodliness by my own power. But what the backstroke says is, God, help me. God, change my heart. God, give me a different perspective. God, let me see the promises of the gospel and deny the promises of the flesh. Let me see the hope that you give me and the, the lie, the deception that's here. Back and forth. you got to fight with both of those things. You work them together constantly like a saw. And you cut away sin. Are you doing that? Yes or no? Are you doing that? You must if you aspire to enjoy the presence and the power of God. Now, I say that individually from verse 14, but I have to immediately acknowledge that what verse 14 is really about the emphasis there the community. Now there's no such thing as community holiness apart from personal holiness. But, which is why I talk about the personal first, but we're talking about a community here in verse 14, the assembly. And so a couple words about that as I close here. We must think about this corporately. We are to be His holy temple in which He dwells and meets with us. So there is a warning here about church priorities. And so this carefully. What it tells us is that priority one is not seeking and saving the lost. It's not heresy, that's true. Right out of verse 14. How in the world would we hope to overcome our enemies if we don't have the power of God? And how in the world would we have the power and presence of God if we are not a holy community? Priority one is... Be holy, for I am holy. And if you're not, all attempts to reach those folks out there will be done in the power of the flesh, because I will have left. We need Him to bless and empower us as we join Him in His seeking and saving of the lost. But we must, to get that, we must pursue, as a people, holiness. In the day-to-day. Not just our, our standing, but holiness in the day-to-day. Which leads me immediately to gospel community. I, I'm going to beat this drum forever. Because it's it's critical. Gospel community. We cannot be a people who even have, have a wonderful, enjoyable, fun, delightful, happy time around each other that is gospel free. By the power of the gospel, we must help each other cut out sin. If we don't, we cut our church off at the knees. Because we invite God to go away while we take care of business ourselves. That is a recipe for disaster. We must be a people who pursue holiness together with one another. The gospel community is a glorious place to do that. I realize that, that In a lot of our communities, we are not at a place relationally where we can do that yet. My particular community, we've spent the last several times that we've gotten together trying to get to know each other. And that's spread to other contact throughout the week as it must. So if that's where your group is, then great, start there and move on. But the goal must be that we gospel one another that we share the hope and the promises of the gospel, that we help each other lift up our eyes to see Christ and to believe what he says so that we can cut out sin that, brother, I think, I wonder if maybe I observed this in your life. Not in a condemning, accusatory way, but in a loving, gracious way. I maybe, can I ask you, what's going on with this? Maybe sin surfaces and together we cut it out. So that he, so that we can enjoy the presence and the power of God in our midst. We must be that as a people. We must be that individually. So to pull all this together in a sentence, he has made a people and he means to make that people holy. Trust him. Let me pray. Father, I ask you to help this rest on us well. To, to rest on me well, that, that my eyes, me personally, individually, that my eyes would be open to my sin and that I would be motivated to fight it and to hope in you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, all of us who overlook this always always we go through every day overlooking it would you give grace to us to change us a little today and a little tomorrow that we would not overlook but would seek out and fight our sin we would fight it by hoping in you we would fight it arm in arm with our brothers and sisters here we need your grace to make that a reality in our church so please father do it I can imagine, Lord, if you would do that, how you would fill up our midst with yourself, delighted to be here, welcomed here, free to run here and there in our church because we don't hold you back out of any dark corners. Turning our hearts towards what you love and what you desire to see done in the community around us. Lord, I I can see that happening, so would you bring it? pass in us make us a church pleasing to you i pray i pray this in christ's name and for christ's glory amen
0: thank you for listening to this message by pastor steve clark of the evangelical free church of salt lake city in salt lake city utah feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission